I'm Kate Daniels. Arthur Levine is a distinguished scholar of higher education at NYU and president emeritus of Teachers College, Columbia University, and the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. Prior to COVID appearing in our lives, Arthur Levine had begun his work on the book, The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future. Through the pandemic, he and his co-author continued the work and now provide us with a very important book that has important implications for all our lives in all aspects. Arthur Levine, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And here we are to talk about a, a really interesting, informative book, The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future. And uh, in part, it makes sense because of this almost two years that we've lived through that uh, there would be some change and we look to schools, we look to the universities with what's happened, but you were already conceiving and working on this book prior to COVID uh, launching whatever it's launched here with us. Indeed. I actually feared when COVID occurred that all my research would have been for nothing because the world would have changed so greatly. That wasn't the case, but it was a fear. And if anything, really, what has happened perhaps has really given a firmer foundation be- behind the the whole concept of the great upheaval. Yes. I mean, essentially what COVID did was accelerate changes that would have occurred anyway. And in some ways, what it did was affirm the findings we'd had before COVID. The frightening part about it was I spoke to a fair number of college presidents during COVID, and I asked them, so what's going to happen? And they said, for the most part, they thought of COVID sort of the way they would have thought of an earthquake or forest fires or hurricanes. And they thought, when it ends, then we'll go back to the way things were in 2019. What they didn't realize was none of us are going back to 2019. The world has changed. It's just changed faster. Yes, it's almost been like a, a pressure cooker effect where everything happened in a more condensed time frame. Exactly. Yeah. So talk to us then, Arthur Levine, about what the great upheaval really means in terms of higher education. Okay. The United States has only experienced change of the magnitude it's experiencing today once before during the Industrial Revolution. These are periods in which change is profound, it's deep, it's continuing, it's accelerating, and the effect it has on all of our individual lives is a real sense of confusion for some loss but a real sense of not knowing what's happening around us, that things are changing so quickly. During periods like that, what happens is that all of our social institutions, which were created for the former era, in this case, what we're talking about is a national analog industrial economy going into a global digital information economy. They don't work as well as they once did. And all of them are forced to change to meet the requirements of a new society which is enormous change, it's transformation. 
And so with uh, what's happened now, and as we said, the, it's been in a more concentrated uh, time frame since COVID, is that we perhaps haven't had that, well, the leisure, if that is even the correct term, of, you know, gradually moving through something. It's been sped up for us, and we've been scrambling. And uh, I don't know if at a, a slower pace, we might have had more time to think about it. But is there a positive thing about having this crunch of time and, and moving forward? I wish I could say yes. It would have been so much nicer to have time to contemplate, to realize what was happening before it started happening, to be able for institutions, for their leaders, to be able to say, ah, here's what's happening and here's where we're going to go. That would have been better. Right. But the fact is, we are where we are. And uh, there's no choosing for it to be different. So with the great upheaval, do you feel that actually you're guiding all of us, really? Because this book applies to not just those in academia, but but people in business, people, uh, as you say, it's kind of looking forward, backward and sideways, that uh, it really applies to all of us. And perhaps this will give us that sense of insight and hopefully collaboration? I hope so. That's essential. I, basically what's happening, I feel like I've been dancing around the edges. And I apologize. What's been happening is we're seeing a demographic sea change in the country in terms of race, in terms of where people are living, in terms of aging, in terms of people coming from abroad. We're witnessing what amounts to a transition in our economy from an industrial to a knowledge economy, which changes all the jobs and the requirements for them. And finally, what we're seeing is a technological revolution, which changes entirely how we receive services, how they're delivered, and um, makes for a very different world than the world we are living in. What occurs to me, and... I hope this is all still relevant within the context of the book, The Great Upheaval, is as all of that is changing and what is needed is changing, and there's seeing how technology plays, and it's kind of been our saving grace through this time, but then what it requires in terms of support, in terms of then equity, not just in this country, but worldwide, uh, we see that challenged well, I think by uh, our whole climate crisis. Indeed we do. One of the interesting, or one of the things the book did was look at three knowledge industries, and they were film, music, and newspapers. They were forced to change a lot more quickly than nonprofits or higher education. And what we saw there was um, a complete disruption of those enterprises, what we saw was technology change, how we get our news. We saw technology change, how we get our films. We saw technology change, how we get our music. And all the old industries were turned on their heads and were replaced by streaming services and other news organizations. And that's what's ahead for us. One of the most interesting things that I saw was there's an organization in California called Coursera. 
And Coursera is an online learning platform that's publicly traded. It has 78 million students. During the pandemic, while higher education was losing enrollment, it increased by 25 million students, more than the entire enrollment in colleges and universities. It offers courses from the top universities around the world, from top companies, Google, L'Oreal, Price Waterhouse, um, Alibaba, um, you name it. It offers courses from the top social institutions, our, our top museums, Museum of Modern Art, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and so on and so forth. What it does is it offers them online, they're available 24-7. It offers them at cheaper prices than colleges and universities can. And it offers them um, in a very individualized format. Students only buy what they want in terms of what they pay for. The fee is $59 a month. Google, for example, offers an IT degree or an IT certificate. Five months, $59 a month, and 10 hours a week of study. The reality is that what college can compete with Google certification in technology? That's the new world we're talking about. More providers of every service you can think of. We're talking about a world in which 96% of Americans have access to the internet through digital devices. And we're talking about a world in which people have gotten used to, during the pandemic, buying Again, 24-7, immediate delivery, buying only a portion. You don't have to buy a whole album. You can buy a song. You don't have to buy um, a particular uh, – you don't have to go to a particular theater. You can get whatever movie you want, and on and on it goes. What's also true about this stuff is it's highly individualized. You get what you want at the price you're willing to pay. That's the new world we're entering. Now I can answer the question you actually asked me, which is, what are the dangers? One danger is simply inequality. One is that we could reserve traditional higher education, four years, degrees, residential, full-time, for those people who can afford it. And for all the rest, it would only be available online offer certificates in addition to degrees, but all the rest, they would not have the opportunity for the richness of the in-class attendance experience. And, and that is what I feel, even having the colleges, the universities had Zoom classes, there still is a difference I find just by attending Zoom meetings between having that conversation and being able to really see each other and look look each other in the eye and and really grapple with things it's not the same doing it online we really do need that physical structure the in person learning do we not I'm not sure and what we know now is that the technology we're seeing today is primitive. This is going to get better and better and better. It's going to become more interactive. It's going to become more individualized. It's going to become more personalized than the classroom. And right now, 
when you think about in-class learning, so the typical college most people think is 18 to 24-year-olds living on campus and attending full-time. That population makes up only 18% of all college students. The rest are part-time. The rest are working. And for them, the convenience and the capacity to individualize may make online learning far more appealing, also lower cost. And and one can really feel how that is so much more equitable to have that and really, you know, all aspects of it just really feel like it makes it work. Uh, and, and I'm all for that. I wonder where we miss, though, that the personal connection of really mm, having relationships and having then a, a deeper understanding of each other. Yes, that's critical. By the way, one of the things that, that when I think about distance learning, uh, when I was at Harvard, I had a friend named Robert Cole, who was a psychiatrist, and he used to teach these huge courses. And one day I went to visit him. We were having lunch. And I met him at the back of his classroom. There must have been a thousand students there. And I looked up front, and there was this itchy, bitsy little guy. If that isn't distance learning, I don't know what is. <laughs> so a lot of our classes aren't as intimate as we'd like to believe they are. But one of the real dangers is what you're talking about. It's that this becomes so individualized. We lose the commonality that we need to share that a democratic society demands. People need to know our history. They need to understand that we're living on a planet together. They need to understand the institutions we live with. They need to understand ethics and values, truth and lies. All of that we need to teach people if they're going to function as citizens. All of that we need to teach people if we're going to survive as a democracy. And not that it was necessarily always found in these institutions of higher learning, but certainly there was that a campus atmosphere where where people would come together and and uh, rub shoulders and you know develop in the way that they did. Whereas with distance learning, then we need to find another way for people to still find a way, whether during COVID or post-COVID, of still having some personal collaboration. Right. It's become so specialized that not only do we not collaborate, but we, we, we can work as individuals. We don't need other people to use what's around us. In addition, colleges and universities have always required something called general education. So in addition to a major, what you take is a whole bunch of courses about the commonality people share. All of that threatens to disappear, not simply because of online learning, but because of the specialization that comes with it. Each of us can study exactly what we want to study and not make room for the commonalities we don't want to study. 
And oh, that is such a critical piece of this. Uh, I, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of, of that particular scene then. So as you've done the research and spent time with your co-author, with Scott Van Pelt, working on this, and I think the the real plus of the book, the the value here is that you came at it from a very unbiased, you know, just kind of a presenting the facts, kind of, well, a journalistic approach. But you've also talked about what the outcome from all of this can be in your final chapter. Yes. And as a matter of fact, when we came to the project, we were, we had no opinion on what we'd find. We knew that uh, people were badly divided on the future of higher education. Some said higher education will be disrupted. Everything we're used to will be replaced. And some said, no, 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 no. Higher education will be able to adapt. It'll keep doing what it's doing. And as a matter of fact, the president of Harvard was an adapter and and one of the key faculty in his business school was a disruptor. These are two people who know the enterprise. They still reached opposite conclusions. So Scott and I decided we would do research coming at it without any opinion on what was going to happen. And lo and behold, we did three kinds of research, historical, also projecting current trends forward, demographics, economics, technology, and looking at other industries that were forced to change more quickly. The surprise was, I guess, that it was real clear what was going to happen through those through, through those three different ways of viewing it, which we hadn't anticipated when we started. So that last chapter only got added, or the last couple of chapters, when people read the manuscript and said, oh, God, if all this is going to change, what do we do? We thought, oh, yeah, we ought to write what we ought to do. Because just because we found this stuff doesn't mean we were happy with this stuff. We were both worried about inequality. We were both worried about the loss of common learning. So So as we are looking to this future, what do you... What do you see that we need to change in order to to try and and really make it as as harmonious or not or, or as I, I don't want to say it's going to be easy, but just so it's as gentle, maybe that's a better word to moving forward. That's a wonderful way to put it. The reality is that if we don't plan the future, the future is going to happen to us. Mm. And the future that we've been talking about isn't one that I would be real happy if it happened to us. So that there are things policymakers need to do, and there are things that uh, campuses need to do. In terms of campuses, the most important thing is realize things have changed, they've changed forever. Second, realize that colleges and universities aren't in the campus credit or course business. What they're really in is the education business. Given the realities today and what's coming, what does education need to look like? The third ingredient is that when the world changes quickly, 
Higher education's key to success has always been having one foot in the library, which seems appropriate to say when talking to you, <laughs> and being human heritage, and one foot in the street, jobs in the real world. When change happens quickly, higher education loses traction with the street, and higher education needs to restore that with careers, jobs, and the real world. And finally, if institutions are going to survive, they need to be distinctive. We have a thousand liberal arts colleges. What makes one different from the other? We have even a larger number of community colleges. We have regional universities. Why should I attend one rather than another? Those institutions that can't define what makes them special are really heading for disruption. And on the policy side, you and I have discussed many of the issues that government needs to react to. One is inequality. Our definition of equity has got to change to meet the needs of a society in which every job, I'm exaggerating, 95% of new jobs being created require some post-secondary education. We have to make that available to people, not only when they're 18, but throughout their lives, because we're going to see massive need for, we're going to see automation, we're going to see job changes, we're going to see knowledge. Half-life getting shorter and shorter. We need to provide funding for upskilling and reskilling throughout people's lives. What we need in addition is that we need the common learning that you and I have been talking about. And we need for government to look at current regulations, which were created for an industrial society in education, and update them and move them into the future. Other than that, I don't think we need to do anything. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, we, we could accomplish that in what, and say, then uh, by the end of the year. <laughs> no, it's a. Oh, I don't think it'll take that long. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, this really, again, I'm going to come back to that word collaboration and, and wanting to have that desire to, to work together rather than at at odds and and wanting to or be the disruptors really see that the path is one of adapting but again there's of course a lot of resistance to that i, I guess there's where education needs to come in once again entirely in terms of the campuses i talked about they're deeply divided too between administrators and faculty and boards they all need to come together if they're going to solve this problem. They need to realize the problems are real and that they need to be confronted and creative solutions are required. And in government, we need to move together institutions. We need to move together the states. We need to move together the federal government, foundations, media, and the public if we're going to make this work. And would you say that in the course of making these changes, 
there's needing to let go of where we were, that what existed wasn't such a perfect place, that uh, because the world is changing, as you just said moments ago, you know, all, all the things that exist in our society, largely equity, um, or one of the large pieces is equity, it, we need to really embrace that moving forward. Entirely. That's really essential. We And the problem is this. None of us did anything wrong. The world changed behind our backs. We were doing what we'd always done, and it'd been good. But it's not good anymore. It doesn't fit the world we're living in. So we need to work together to figure out the solutions. Yes. And while, as you also were mentioning earlier, how COVID just really accelerated this, but over time we've seen how already change was happening more and more quickly. Uh, Information was doubling. And so we were moving forward faster, but we weren't necessarily really understanding and accepting that completely. Very well put. COVID was a break point. COVID in many ways was a crystal ball. It showed what was going to happen. It just would have happened more slowly. And so here's the opportunity we have for ourselves with the great great upheaval, higher education's past, present, and uncertain future being like this lens of of life, the life we are living now, and it's in our hands to make this choice of how we want to move forward and what that future is going to look like. Entirely. The issue we've been discussing for the most part has been higher education, but the realities are the same in government, in healthcare, in our financial institutions, all facing the same challenges all need to change in the same fashion. Well, I am so appreciative, Arthur Levine, that you and your co-author, Scott Van Pelt, undertook this huge project to look at life in our institutions of higher learning. But as you said, too, this is really just uh, what is happening all around us. And the, the book easily, readily available at any of our favorite book sources is uh, one that I I think would be great for people to have as, say, a book reading group. You can do it online or even gather in a in, in a space and and have this ongoing conversation about how to approach our future. Thank you very much. Well, I thank you. It's been uh, so informative and insightful. And once again, I'm so grateful that we have this book, The Great Upheaval. Thank you, Arthur Levine, for spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Cancer Pathways is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides unique cancer support services educational programs, and community events to help patients, survivors, caregivers, their families, and communities better face the impact of cancer. It's now been 20 years of this important and support work.
After 16 years as Gildas Club Seattle and four years as Cancer Pathways, this is now the 20th anniversary year. Honoring their history, Cancer Pathways remains committed to the vision of a world where no one faces cancer alone. To honor those 20 years, Cancer Pathways is bringing together survivors and comedians in a virtual program for a night of laugh-out-loud comedy while raising money for all of the Cancer Pathways programs. With spectacular auction items and a hilarious lineup of comedians, you won't want to miss it. On Saturday, October 16th at 7 p.m., join virtually for Honoring 20 Years, Survivors Take the Stage. Register before October 10th and be entered to win a prize. Just visit cancerpathways.org and you'll find Honoring 20 Years. Just follow the prompts, register, and be part of supporting the great healing work of Cancer Pathways. Participate in the online auction and prepare to be entertained and laugh with the exceptional lineup of comedians. That's Cancer Pathways Honoring 20 Years, an important event for an even more important support organization. Visit cancerpathways.org.